0: 1 Samuel chapter 29, kind of hard to believe, we only have three chapters left uh, in this book and uh, we're going to be rolling into uh, 2 Samuel, I may or may not do a uh, special series in between the two books, we'll see, I'm praying about that, but for this morning we're in 1 Samuel chapter 29, title of the message today is How Did I Get Here? You ever, you ever experience that as a Christian where all of a sudden you take a step back and you take a sober look at your life and you think, man, how did I get here? I, I, you know, maybe you, you're in a season where you have been disobedient to God's word and you, and you sort of get to a place where you're thinking, this is not who I am, this is not who God's made me to be, how did I get wrapped up in this, how did I get in this place, uh, and, and really we're going we're gonna to see that in the life of David uh, today. We've been following his life throughout this book um, and what we find now is that here in uh, chapter 29 of 1 Samuel, David's in a season of spiritual decline in his life. Um, you know David is a guy who 's known great heights you know he was He was called by God, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the king of israel and um, and you know in with that anointing, he did wonderful things uh, for the Lord. He stepped out and was victorious in his battle against Goliath, the whole Israeli army quaking in their boots, afraid to to go against the enemies of God and David, uh, by faith in God and by this anointing from God, stepped out, was, was hugely victorious over this giant uh, and subsequently as the general over all of Israel's armies for a season, he was victorious in battle, uh, had great victories uh, in the battles against the enemies of God. Um, but David has also experienced a season of great trial. And uh, we've seen for the, for the past seven years in David's life, uh, at this point, and, and really for the, for the next several years, for a total of ten years, going through great trial as God seasoning him, preparing him uh, for, uh, you know, the, the calling that he has on his life to be king. But God allowing this season of trial and persecution to come into David's life to, to refine him and to mold him and to shape him. And so subsequently, he is uh, hunted by King Saul, who, who has been told through the prophet Samuel, listen, through your disobedience, because you haven't listened to God, because you haven't surrendered your life to him, and because you've lived in such a way, Saul, that you're more interested in your empire than you are in the kingdom of God, God says, I'm all done with you. Everybody out of the pool, you're out. And uh, and I'm going to get someone else. And so Saul, looking over his shoulder, who's that guy going to be? He's trying to hold on to his kingdom, uh, not really you know, embracing the fact that, look, it ain't your kingdom, man. It's God's kingdom. But he's trying to hold on to it, looking over his shoulder, so he becomes jealous of David, begins to attack David, and pursue David with his forces. And now David has been on the run for his life. And seven years of this have taken their toll in David's life. And we've gone through that and we've looked at that and we see David now, he's a man who's begun to lose faith and he's starting to walk by sight. Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so David is a man who's been in in great heights with God, walking with great faith and now walking by sight and that's taken him uh, into enemy territory. And not only has he gone into enemy territory, but now he's actually aligned himself with the enemies of God. He's aligned himself with the Philistines. And, uh, and you know, the Bible warns against this. It tells us, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And and certainly for us, that is is a warning from God that we need to be careful about the company that we keep. And today we're going to see that play out as we look at three things in the life of David. We're going to look at David's plight. We're going to look at David's, or, or rather, look at God's providential protection. And thirdly, we're going to look at God's prescription. So we jump right into it. David's plight, First Samuel chapter 29, beginning in verse 1, and we read, Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. So the forces lining up, they're getting ready uh, for this battle, the Philistines on the attack. And now they're sort of gathered together and they're gathering their forces together. And what the Philistines are doing is they're, they've got this military parade, not unlike... You know, you might see in Red Square in Moscow where they have a great military parade and they have all of their, you know, might assembled and it's there psychologically for the Philistines to get all gripped up and all, you know, ready, prepared for the fight, look at who we are, look at our power, look at our might and and they're just psyching themselves up. This is them in the locker room, the coach getting everybody all psyched up for the, the battle. This is what's going on here. And chapter two, or verse 2 says, And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with kish. And so you read this and you're like, what on earth is going on here? David with his 600 men now in this military parade. They're marching with the Philistines. And that's the Bible uses the word but because it's like a matter of saying... What on earth is this? You're there in Red Square, and you see this military parade, and all of a sudden, there's, you know, the Navy SEALs, part of this military parade in, you know, Red Square, and you're like, no, no, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and this is what's going on here. Verse 3, Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? They get it, they see it. And Akish said to the princes of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years, and to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me? And isn't it funny there, you know, it's, it's the enemies of God that all of a sudden they're the ones that, you know, look and go, this, what are the Hebrews doing here? Right? So often in your life, maybe in my life, you have a time or a season where you know, you're know you a Christian trying to follow after the Lord. And have you ever noticed it's the ungodly so often that can point out the sin in your life. You know, Maybe you're there at work and there's some gossip going on at work. And all of a sudden you say something and instantaneously the people who have just themselves been just caught up in and just let it so freely coming out of their mouth. But the moment you say anything, they turn to you and they go, oh, I thought you were Christian. What are you doing? You know, joining here with us. You know, they're the ones that, that jump right into it. Or there's, you know, going away party at work and everybody's gathering down at the local, you know, the whatever, the El Paso Cantina, ca- Cantina kind of thing. And they're all getting together for drinks to wish somebody off well at work. And you show up. They're like, hey, Mr. Christian, what are you doing here? You know, And so this is what's going on here. It's the ungodly that, that see what's going on. And, and so Akish steps up, and he's like, hey, this guy's been with me, and he's been good to me, and so on. And he says, I've found no fault in him since he defected to me. And that word defective or defected is interesting. If, if, uh, if you look at it in the Hebrew, uh, it's the word nephail. And what it means is to fall or to fall away. And what a great description of what's going on in David's life. He's fallen away. And uh, and so the the king says, man, this guy's fallen away. He's not with them anymore. He's with me. David, in this season in his life, he is in a place that he never thought he'd be. He is in a place to where, man, if somebody had gone up to him after his battle with Goliath and told him, hey, great great victory. You know what's going to happen to you in a few years? You're going to be fighting with the Philistines. David would have said, you're high, man. You are on glue. What are you talking about? That is not me. And yet here he is. He's in this place where he's fallen away. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe today. Maybe you're in a place where you're thinking, yeah, I'm physically here in church, but now I've gotten into something. I'm, 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 I'm practicing something. I'm, I've gotten to a place where, where I never thought I'd be. Some of you last night, just on, you know, where you were at on the internet, and you're thinking, man, I just, who who am I? This is a a place I, I never thought that I would be, but yet, you know, here I am. And like David, sometimes Christians do fall away, find themselves on the wrong side, find themselves in the wrong place, find themselves in the wrong camp, find themselves with the wrong company. How did David get here? Well, David got here the same way that so many Christians can get here. Start off walking by faith. Things are going great. You've got fruit in your life. But then somewhere along the way, when the trials come, doubt starts to creep in. You begin to walk by sight rather than walking by faith. And you get yourself in a place where you just wander away from God. I think of the Apostle Peter in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 14 says that, you know, the disciples there in the boat, and Jesus comes out, he's walking on the water, they're freaking out. Peter exercises great faith. He says, Lord, if it's you, bid that I should come out and, and, and walk to you. And Jesus is like, come on, Pete. And so he gets out of the boat, and Peter walking on the water. And how did he walk on the water? He walked on the water when his eyes were fixed on the Lord. And they're exercising great faith, walking on water. And all of a sudden, the story says that Peter began to look at the wind and the waves. How can you look at the wind? Well, you see the effects of it as it's, you know, tossing up, stirring up the sea, and the waves blowing and all. And Peter took his eyes off Jesus, and he began to look at his circumstances. And the second he started to do that, he began to sink. And I love the, the way the story unfolds because what Satan does in your life and what Satan does in my life so often is that, you know, he will tempt us to, to doubt. He will, you know, be at work trying to attack us and the circumstances in our lives get us to a place where we're, you know, overwhelmed and we begin to take our eyes off the Lord and we begin to sink and at that moment, so often, the enemy can come and he can lie to you and basically tell you, you are such a loser because you took your eyes off the Lord. Look at where you're at. Nobody's going to help you now. You think God's going to help you? You, did. you took your eyes off of God. What, is he going to reward that? No, listen, you, you, better, you better get your act straight, man. You better clean yourself up. You better, you know, do something to get yourself back in God's good, God's good graces, you know. And so he'll lie to us and, and so there's so many people, metaphorically speaking, they're in that place where they've taken their eyes off the Lord and I'm sinking, man, and life is just overwhelming me and I'm going down. And on top of it all, I believe this lie that says, I got to clean myself up to come to God. Peter does none of that. He begins to sink. What's he say? Help, Lord. I mean, he doesn't pray this, oh, now thou good and faithful and merciful God, have, I know that I've, I've sinned and I, he's just, help, Cecil, help, you know, help, Lord. And Jesus just plucks him right out. Maybe you're in that season today, you've taken your eyes off the Lord, you begin to walk by sight and not by faith. Peter's such a great example to us of of this happening, and Peter's a good example in a lot of ways because there's lots of instances in Peter's life where he took his eyes off the Lord, and he began to look at his own circumstances, or he began to doubt, or he began to make decisions, you know, that were contrary to what the Lord would have for him to do. Turn to uh, Mark chapter 14. i will take a look at Peter here in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 14, this is the last supper, Jesus is meeting with his disciples, he's talking to them and he basically is warning them, he says, look, tonight they're going to come get me, they're going to haul me off and all y'all are going to run away like sc- scared little girls, my paraphrase, it's, it's, I think if you look in the original Greek, it's, it, it reads like that, But Jesus is telling his disciples, look, you guys guys are all going to run away. You're all going to forsake me today. We'll pick it up in verse 27. And uh, and it says there, sorry, I'm in chapter 15. That's why that doesn't look familiar. Um, And Jesus says to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised... I'll go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. You're wrong, Lord. I will never leave you. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be so strong. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, Peter, spoke more vehemently. and He said, if I have to die with you, I'll not deny you. And they all said, likewise. Now, here they are. They're all in that place. They're believing, look, I'm not going to go there. This is not me. I'm going to be with you. And we, at one time, when we're on the spiritual mountain, we're walking with the Lord. We're having victory. We're, we're, you know, like David in his life. And we're, you know, somebody might come up to us and go, look, you're going to deny the Lord. You're going to fall into sin. You're going to get yourself in a place where, you know, you never imagined you'd be, and we'd be like, no way, that is not me. And yet, you know, here Peter is saying the same thing. Now, you skip down, take a look at verse 50, the events unfold, and uh, it says, then they all forsook him, and they fled, right? Jesus knows what he's talking about. So, so you continue Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 53. It says, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. But Peter, verse 54, followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants, and he warmed himself at the fire. Now, I want you to get that picture because that is a picture of what we so often do, and it's certainly a picture of what David's doing in our text. See, because what Peter thinks, even though he's fled, even though he's in the place where he never thought he would be, Jesus, I'll die, I'll die for you, right, and, 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 and yet what happens now is he's at the place where he thinks, well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just follow Jesus at a distance, you know, and and so, and now all of a sudden he's in a place where he's in cahoots with the enemy. He's gathered, he's assembled with them. He's not standing by the Lord, he's not following the Lord closely. He thinks he can follow him at a distance, and now all of a sudden he's warming himself with the enemy at the enemy's fire. See, if you if you fall away from the Lord. Your life, spiritually speaking, is going to get cold, and you are going to get to the place where you seek warmth, you're seeking some sort of shelter, you're seeking some sort of thing for yourself. I think of David going to, you know, Akish and saying, give me a place, man, I've been on the run on this, you know, and he doesn't say it this way, but we know, look, I'm on this venture of faith with God, God in his sovereign will has put me in a season of trial and a season of testing, and you know what, I don't trust God anymore. Because, because it's just so hard. So, you know what, Akish, why don't you just give me some land in enemy territory? Give me a place, of shelter here where, where I can be comfortable here warming himself at the enemy's fire. What comes to my mind is Proverbs chapter 1, which says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And you see a progression there. You're all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're not walking in God's counsel. You're not walking close to God. Now, all of a sudden, you start walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Your path takes a little bit of a turn. And then you get a little further down the, the, the thing there. And now, not only are you walking in the, in the counsel of the ungodly, but now you're standing in the paths of sinners. In other words, you're a little bit more settled in this ungodly direction in your life. And pretty soon sits at the seat of the scornful. You just settle right down there in this place that has been distanced from God. And this is exactly what we see here in Mark chapter 14. Peter, you know, I'll never deny you, Lord, and all of a sudden, oh, I think I'll follow you at a distance. Oh, now all of a sudden I'm going to be in cahoots and hanging out with all these ungodly people, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warm myself at this, at this enemy fire. It's so sad that it describes so many Christians today. And so often we can get to the place where I, you know, I call myself a follower of Jesus Christ, but you know what? I'm more faithful to follow people on Facebook and Twitter than I am really to follow the Lord. If the shoe fits, man, there it is. You know how how much time have you spent this week? You know, following the Lord, seeking Him in His will. Do you do you, you know? It's a, it's a great little question, and I I don't. I don't ask it that you would answer to me, I just ask it, maybe you contemplate the question and ask yourself, take a walk with it this week. Have I spent more time in Facebook than I've spent with my face in his book, you know? Sometimes, man, that's that's where we can be. And so we need to ask the question, do I think I can follow the Lord at a distance? Do I really think that? Do I think I can follow him at a distance and not get to the place where, you know, things start to get a little chilly and I seek to warm myself somewhere else? It's interesting as we continue there in the account in, in Mark's gospel. You pick it up there at verse 66. It says, now as Peter was... Below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls, the high priest, came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him. And she said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. Listen, trials are going to come and you're going to be in a place. And maybe if you wander from this path with God and you get to a place where you think, I can follow him at a distance. Well, all of a sudden now when the trials come and when you face persecution... Well, you think you're going to be able to stand closely with Jesus when you've been following him from afar? Here's what happens to Peter. She says, you also with Jesus, and he denied it, verse 68, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying, and he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. Jesus said, for the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. There's number one, and the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But he denied it again, and a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. We we hear your accent, buddy. You're one of of his people, man. And then he began to curse and to swear. he's, He's just using profanity here. He's taking oaths. He's like, I do not know this man whom you speak. And a second time... The rooster crowed. And it says, Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice. You will deny me three times. And it's interesting, if you read this in Luke's gospel, it says that at that moment when the rooster crowed, right after Peter had denied him a third time, that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And Peter looked at Jesus. Now all of a sudden, he's looking him right in the eye. And we conclude, it says, And when, the, when he thought about it, he wept. And I, I just wonder, maybe this morning, maybe, you know, you've been following Jesus from afar. Maybe you've been warming yourself, the enemy fire. And maybe this morning, all of a sudden, here we're talking about this. And this morning, Jesus is looking you in the eye, and you've, you've, you've locked eyes with him. And Peter, at this point, is just absolutely devastated. And he goes away. He's completely devastated. Now, if you are familiar with Peter, you know that this devastation followed him even after Jesus was risen from the dead and after he was all hopeful about everything. Still, Jesus is telling his disciples to wait and Peter goes back to the Sea of Galilee. He gets to a season of his life where he tells his buddies, I'm going back to fishing. And what's going on in Peter's heart and in his mind? I'll tell you what's going on in his heart and his mind. He's thinking, I blew it and it's all over for me. I let God down. I told him, even though everybody else denies you, I'll never deny you. I denied him, you know. Hey, great, he rose from the dead. I'm so thrilled about that. But but he can never use me again. And so Peter goes back to his old way of life. And you know the story. Jesus comes and he shows up. And Peter goes out. He fishes all night. He catches nothing. Now, I, Peter must not have been a very good fisherman. Because we read a couple times in Scripture, he fishes all night, catches nothing. Luke chapter 5, when he was called into the ministry... Fishes all night, catches nothing. Jesus shows up. He fills his boat so full, it begins to sink. He's like, I'm following you. So here he goes. He goes back to his old way, old way of life. He fishes all night. He doesn't catch anything. And all of a sudden, somebody goes, oh, look, there's Jesus on the shore. And Peter jumps in and runs to Jesus. And what does he find? He finds Jesus there. Not only has he got fish, but he's cooked it up. He's got breakfast for him. And this is when Jesus restores Peter. Peter, you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. See, God wasn't done with Peter, and God's not done with you. And so maybe if you've locked eyes with the Lord this morning, and you think, man, how have I gotten here in my life? And and, and I, I can never be what I once was. Yes, you can. Because the Lord loves you. So if you're in a place today where you've been following the Lord at a distance, maybe you know, not attending church regularly, not reading your Bible faithfully, not praying faithfully, not giving faithfully, not walking obediently with Him faithfully, and you got, you got you know, baggage and carry-ons in your life from stuff that you've done, trying to follow Jesus from a distance, His word to you today would be to say, no, 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 you can come back. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either they'll hate the one and love the other. Or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. Now in the context of Jesus saying that, he's talking about, you know, you can't love God and you can't love your money too. But the the broader spiritual principle still applies. You cannot say, I'm going to follow Jesus at a distance and I'm going to warm myself at the enemy fire. And still expect that you're going to have this close, intimate, dynamic, life-changing relationship with God. You can't do it. Well, this is David's plight. Let's look at God's providential protection. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 29, we pick it up in verse 4. As we continue, these guys are freaking out. What's David doing here? And so as we begin, but the princes of the Philistines were angry with him, speaking of, of Achish, the, the, the king. And so the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return that he may go back to the place Which you have appointed for him, and do not let him go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master if not with the heads of these men? In other words, hey, look, there's David, yeah, he has, you know, defected. And he has got Saul and his forces angry with him and chasing him. But what do you think? If he turns on us and brings our heads to Saul, that's just the ticket that might you know, cause him to say, hey, everything's forgiven and we'll welcome you back. This is what the, the Philistines are, are saying. They're princes of the Philistines saying to Achish. And so they're like, get him out of here, man. And uh, don't let him go down with us to the battle. Don't let him do these things. Verse 5, is, is this not David... Of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. They remember who David was. They remember this hit song that was on, you know, the radio and number one song. Here's our number one song on the top ten, you know. And, and this is what everybody sang. When David fought and overcame Goliath and was successful, and then subsequently Saul made him his general, and he had all these victories against these Philistines. They know the hit song. This is that guy, man. And then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. And that is a sad testimony when you've got an enemy of God saying that about you. You've been great to me. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And so David said to Achish, but what have I done? Now, you know, what would be wonderful for him, it would be wonderful at this point, David would say in his heart, how did I get here? Here's, you know, the enemy of God praising me for how faithful I've been to him. Wouldn't it be wonderful if at this moment David woke up? Snap out of it, David and went, how did I get here? No, instead, what happens, we read, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant, as long as I've been with you, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? He's speaking about God's people. I think, you know, why can't I go with you to destroy God's people? How the mighty have fallen, David. Verse 9, then Achish answered, and he said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. <laughs> Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go down with us to the battle. And now, therefore, rise early in the morning for your master's servants who have come uh, with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have and light, uh, depart. And so David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. The second point, this is God's providential protection, His providential protection. And you see God's providence here manifested in in this situation and circumstances as He's providentially protecting David. Now it's been said that providence is when the hand of God is in the glove of human events. And this is certainly what's going on here. See, because the Philistines think that they're being prudent by sending David back home. But in truth, what's happening is this is the the instruments of God. God's just providentially using these Philistines as his divine instruments to protect David from completely disqualifying himself. And so God's using these men and he's using these circumstances to protect David. David. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except for such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not, here it is, allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In other words, God promises to supervise the temptation that we face, and He promises to limit it according to our capacity to endure it. See, because here's the thing. Satan, if God let him, he would absolutely, completely, totally destroy you. If God just gave Satan free reign in your life and said, have at him, have at it, just go, go for it, no holds barred, Satan would take you out completely. He'd destroy us in a minute if God would let him. Just like he wanted to destroy Job. Just like he wanted to destroy Peter. The Lord warned Peter, hey, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. Scary thought, right? I mean, say, put your name in there. Jesus talking to you. Hey, Mike, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. You'd be like, if, if you know what, what the implication of that is, you'd pee your pants right there. You'd be like, why? Well, he, he wants to destroy me? Now the implication is that, you know, he has to ask. See, and so just as, the, as Satan came to, to God and said, hey, look at Job down there. Well, God points him out to Satan. He's like, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan's like, you know, well, yeah, but, you know, you, you protect him. You got a hedge around him. You know, we pray sometimes as Christians, Lord, put a hedge of protection around us. That comes from the book of Job. Because Satan says to God, you got a hedge of protection around this guy. And God's like, all right, you know what, I'll tell you what, I'll let you at him. But he limits what Satan can do to Job. Just like he limits what the enemy can do to you in your life. Moms, you get this, you understand this. Sometimes you you limit the temptation that your kids face. You go to the grocery store, you're like, oh, there's the candy aisle. And if I go down that, my kid will not be able to abstain, and he will get himself into real big trouble. So you just keep him out of the candy aisle, right? I don't want to fight that battle. See, and sometimes God will do this with us. He'll, he'll keep us from stuff that, that we can't handle. Jude chapter 1, verse 24 says, God is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And so what that means in your life and in my life, practically speaking, is that sometimes God thwarts our plans to sin. You're like, really? Does God really do that? Yeah, we've got some biblical examples of when God thwarted men's plans to sin. I, I think immediately about Jonah. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel so that they might be saved. And Jonah was so prejudiced against the people of Nineveh that he got on a ship going to Tarshish, going the exact opposite direction. Well, God intervenes. There's the storm and all, and everything's going bad, and everybody's freaking out on the ship. They're like, okay, who's in Dutch with God here? Who's made God mad? Some, something's going on here. And Jonah's like, it's me. Throw me overboard. Just kill me. God intervenes to keep Jonah from doing that which he doesn't want him to do because God has plans and purposes for Jonah. He wants to use him. And so God intervenes. Saul, on the road to Damascus, he's got letters from all the the authorities in the church. Hey, guess what? I'm going to go kill Christians. God's like, not today, you're not. He intervenes. Knocks him off his horse. Strikes him blind. Sends, sends a man to go speak to him, to say, hey, listen, you know, I got, I got other plans for you, Paul. And so even though David, here in our text, he's compromised, he's following the wrong crowd, God's got plans and purposes for David, so he intervenes and he protects him. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans chapter 8, he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers... Nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now at this point, if you're paying attention, you might go, well, wait a minute, what about free will? What about, you know, God's created us with a free will. Don't we have the capacity? This kind of makes it sound like you're just a robot and God's going to do whatever he's going to do with you and you don't really have a choice in the matter. No, you have a choice in the matter. See, the, the, the fact of the matter is, if you are bound and determined to kick against the goads, which is what Paul, God accused Paul of, he says, you're kicking against the goads, man, why are you doing that? Now, now, Saul at the time, he would become Paul, but, you know, Saul kicking against the goads and going in that direction, but he heeded and he course-corrected. with with the Lord's not-so-subtle prodding in his life, saying, Paul, i got plans for you. I don't want you to be doing this. But if you are bound and determined to sin, you can reach the point where God just lets you go. But God will intervene in your life. He's still going to try and get you to where he wants you to go. Right? He's still going to try and steer you. You In Ephesians chapter 1, we read there that, that God has predestined us for certain works that we should be doing. And the fact is, is that God has plans for you. He wants you to come to know him, and he wants you to serve him with your life. And he's got certain plans that he wants to do in you and through you, just like he has plans for David. Look, he's called him to be the king. I got plans for you, David. But David can disqualify himself from those plans. He can go in that direction. But God, because he loves him, he's going to intervene. And so providentially, he intervenes. He uses the the very Philistines themselves to intervene and go. We don't trust him. Send him back. But it's God's providential work in in, in David's life. So if you are, are are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're saved today, if you you're not going to lose your salvation. If you if you resist God he's going to try and keep you out of the candy aisle he's going to try and keep you from the temptations that are that are going to train wreck you trying to keep you on the path that he wants you to do for the purpose of his works in your life but but it is possible for you to resist him to the point to where you know he can't use you as effectively as he wants to but you're not going to lose your salvation if you know the Lord if you're, you're saved and, and and hidden in him John chapter 10 verses 27 through 29, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So your, your salvation in, in Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, you're saved, you can't lose your salvation. But if you go off the deep end in that sinful state as a Christian, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be miserable. And God's going to do one of three things in your life if you go in a direction He doesn't want you to go in. The first thing He's going to do is what we see here with David. He's, he's going to find a way to bring you back to fulfill His purposes for your life. Ephesians chapter 1. I got plans. i got purposes for you. And I know I want to use you. God's going to do everything He can to steer you back. On that track. Well, the second thing he might do with you if you're in that situation and you're a Christian who's been following Jesus from afar and warming yourself at the enemy's fire, well, you're gonna be severely handicapped in your walk if you continue in that direction. I think of Jeremiah chapter 18, where Jesus or the, the God the Father instructs Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house. He goes, go down to the potter's house, check out what he's doing. I want to speak to you just with an object lesson, what you might see down there. And so he goes down there, and, and as he's looking at this potter, he sees the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter, and so he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. In other words, the implication here is what, what, what Jeremiah observed is that sometimes the potter grabs a lump of clay and he's like, I want to make a beautiful vase out of this thing. And all of a sudden he starts working it on the potter's wheel and he finds, well, gosh, this lump of clay has got some real hard spots in it. And I, I just can't, it's fighting against me. It's resisting me. I just can't fashion this thing into the vase that I want. I want to use this for this beautiful vase. And so it's like, well, that's not going to work because he, it, it's resisting me. Got all these hard spots. And so by the time he's done, he finishes up with an ashtray. He's like, well, there you go. I wanted this to be a beautiful vase, but I'll still, I'll still use it. But I'm going to be limited in how I can use it. Now it's, you know, I'll, my purpose is, oh, well, I needed an ashtray too, so that, there you go. Or I needed a spittoon too or whatever it is, you know. And so this is the idea here. If you are bound and determined, God's going to try and say, look, no, don't follow me from afar. Don't warm yourself in the enemy fire. Let me get you back where you need to be. Let me use you for the purposes that I've intended to use your life. No? You're going to fight me? All right. Well, you know, Romans eight twenty eight tells us all things work together for good. to Those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So God might say, you know what? I'm not able to use you as I would like, but I'm still going to use you in some way, shape, or form. But, you know, you're going to be miserable, and you're never going to be all that God intends you to be. Now, the third thing that can happen, if we're bound and determined to go in a direction that God hasn't called us to go in, again, you're not going to lose your salvation, but, listen, if you go too far down that road of sin and destruction in your life, God might get to the place where He just says, I can't, I can't do anything more with this person. I'm just going to take them home. And, 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 you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 kind of speaks to that. You know, we, we talk about 1 Corinthians often in chapter 11 when we partake of communion. And, you know, it says there that we need to do this often in remembrance of the Lord and that the bread is the symbol of his body broken for us, the cup the symbol of his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And we're to remember what Jesus has done for us often. And Paul exhorts the Corinthians there as he's writing it out, but let a man first examine himself. And it's not a, hey, examine yourself to make sure that, you know, you uh, are, you know, being perfect in the, in the sight of God. It's not that kind of an examination. It's an examining of yourself to say, am I, am I truly living a life that, that is submitted and embracing the fact that I'm a sinner saved by grace and Jesus gave his life for me? And now that God has given his life for me, I want to be used by God. I want to serve God. I want to be fully available to God. And so what Paul's talking about is that some Christians live their life and they come to the communion and they sort of start taking their salvation for granted. But it's like wink, wink, at sin and I'm just going to live any way I want to and just partake of communion and oh, it's all good, it's all good. And what Paul says to these Corinthians, he says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, for this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep in other words what paul's saying here is that sometimes people christians legitimately saved but don't live a life fully yielded to christ and at some point in time the lord just says <whistles> out of the pool taking you home cuz you're saved but you're not you're not fully available to me and, and, and so this is what the, 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 the Bible teaches, Paul, when he says they eat and drink judgment to himself, it's not return, referring to an eternal judgment or, or you know, it, it's re- referring to a corrective judgment. In other words, it's not a judge judging a criminal for, you know, for, to, to condemnation, rather it's a father dealing with a disobedient child. That's the spirit, the essence of what Paul says to the Corinthians. So apparently a believer can sin to the point where God concludes it's just best to take you home. So one of those three things can happen in your life and for David here in our text what's happening is that God is stepping in to providentially protect David so that he doesn't disqualify himself so that God can, even though he's in a season of disobedience God can course correct him get him back in the place where he can fulfill his purposes in David's life. How is he going to get him back on track? Well, we looked at David's plight. We've looked at God's providential protection of David. Let's look at God's prescription for how he's going to get him back on track. Chapter 30, verse 1. Now, it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. So they, they are sent back. They go back to Philistine territory, back to their town. They come back to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag. Attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. And so they're coming back to their little haven, their little home away from home, their little safe place that David's constructed for himself and walking in the flesh, and all of a sudden it's burned to the ground and everything's gone. And so they burned it to the ground, verse 2, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but they carried them away and they went their way. Now, David and his men don't know this yet. God's telling us this in the word, but they get there. They see Ziklag burned to the ground. And remember, what has David been doing the whole time he's been there? He's been going into Amalekite territory and he's been killing entire towns, men, women, just decimating everything. And so in a way, they they are treating him better than he treated them because they didn't didn't kill their their wives and their children at all. But David and his men, they don't know it yet. So they've carried him away. Verse 3, so David and his men came to the city, and there it was burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept, until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the uh, Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. And now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now consider everything that Ziklag represents as we draw this to a close. To David, Ziklag was his refuge. It was his place of shelter from the storm. But listen, Ziklag was all a work of David's flesh. Ziklag was a place that was in enemy territory. It was away from God and his people. It was funded by robbery and murder. Right, And, and, and this has brought David to the brink of joining forces with God's enemy. This is all that Ziklag represents. And now David is standing in the ruins of his self-will, surrounded in this just smoking, heaping pile of decimation. And there he is, he's looking around. This is the outcome of his compromise it's all lying there in the ashes all around him. His family's gone. His men are ready to stone him. And the Philistines won't even, don't even want him. But listen, God wants him. And maybe today you can look around and you're in a place where you look around and you say, man, I've made a mess of things. And it's ashes and it's sort of just, it's ruins all around me here. And you think, you know, what more is there for me? And the enemy at this point would want you, just as he worked with with Judas when he denied the Lord, he's like, just go hang yourself. And that's what Judas does. See, both Judas and Peter denied the Lord. What's the difference between the two? Peter repented. See, and so what's happening here, this is God's prescription for David's life. He's wanting to bring him back. God wants him. And today that might be God's word to you. You might be in a place where you go, how did I get here? And what have I done? And just look at where I'm at. And you need to know God wants you. He wants you desperately. And God has providentially, I mean, He delayed David, you know, and, and prevented him from going with these guys, sent him back home, but He delayed David just long enough that Ziklag could be toasted. And he gets back there, but he didn't delay him so long that he can't do something about it. And that's what we're going to see next week is David now responding and doing something about it to go get his wife back, to go get his children back, to go get all their stuff back. But God wanted to bring him to that place where he would say, look, you're at the end of yourself, David. What are you going to do now? And we read that David's response was to strengthen himself in the Lord. And that word "strengthen" it means to fasten upon. It means to fasten upon. And today, I close with that just to say, look, you might have a plight and God has providentially protected you and now maybe God's prescribed something for you. And in his prescription, it's all about the fact that he isn't done with you. Loves you, has a plan and a purpose for you. And so as we close in prayer today, I want to encourage you just to contemplate the goodness and the loving mercy of God. He doesn't want to leave you where you're at. He wants to set your feet on a rock and he wants to set you on the course to where he can use you and do wonderful things in your life if you let him.